All right, well, our second scripture reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 13 through 32. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1536. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it understand the woes of our Lord and learn from them. This week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, woe to me. Why do I have to preach from such negative words? How do I speak to this congregation, to people that I love, such scathing remarks? Where's the hope? Where's the light in the darkness? 
Where are the words that we heard from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In a text such as this, there seems to be very little of that. But maybe that's the whole point. We tend to be a people who only like to hear words that are uplifting and full of encouragement. It's why celebrities such as Oprah Winfrey are so popular. We want to have our ears tickled with words of flattery, with people telling us that that in the end, everything is going to be okay. And we want our Jesus to do the same exact thing. But the truth of the matter is that everything is not okay. We live in a fallen creation, and we are a fallen race. In our pride, we have turned our backs on our Creator. And there are certain people whose hearts have grown so cold that they will never see the light of salvation. Their destiny is to be, is to be judged and to fall under the wrath of God. And this is what we see in these seven woes of Jesus. It is why such condemning words came from the mouth of our Lord. And so if you have come here today hoping to be uplifted, looking for for some type of encouragement, then, then this message is going to disappoint. It will not be what you are looking for. But that doesn't mean that these words aren't valuable to you. In fact... I think they may be exactly what you need to hear. For perhaps you need to have your thinking challenged about who Jesus is. Maybe you need to meet this Jesus, the one who doesn't fit your expectations. Now this word woe, what does it mean? In both the Greek and in the Hebrew, it has a very similar pronunciation. In the Hebrew, the expression is hoi, while in the Greek, it is oi. Just whether or not you want to voice it or not, right? When I was in a missionary in Thailand, the Thai people had an expression. They would say oi all the time, and it, it, it kind of was the same meaning. Woe was me, they, you know. They'd trip and like, oi. Or, you know, they'd, something bad would happen. Like, oi. And uh, my guess is it has the same roots linguistically as these words in Hebrew and Greek. You see, a woe, it, it, it could have two basic meanings depending on the context. Uh, a woe could be a compassionate alas. Like, like someone who is heartbroken over a great misfortune. Or it could be a strong word of condemnation, like someone who is placing a curse upon their enemy. And when we look at the seven woes that Jesus placed upon the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, it is the latter that he has in mind. These words are a denunciation upon them. They are words of judgment. But even though this is the case, It doesn't mean that there isn't any tinge of compassion on the part of Jesus. In fact, by his very nature, we know that Jesus loved these men more than anyone else. 
And yet the words that they needed to hear were these seven woes. Words of rebuke. Words of condemnation. Before we jump in, I think it would be prudent for us to to see exactly how these woes are, are organized, how they are laid out in Matthew's gospel. For what we'll find is that that they form what is known as a chiasm or a chiastic structure. If many of you have heard me talk about this before, but if you haven't, bear with me for a moment and you'll soon catch on. A a chiasm is kind of like a a word sandwich, if you will, where where each layer kind of builds upon the other and, and leads to a central point. And what we find in the middle of that sandwich is the meat. And what we see here in these seven woes is that the meat comes in Jesus' fourth woe. Look at, look at how this plays out. In verse 13 and in verses 29 through 32, we see that these Pharisees and their forefathers failed to recognize both the prophets as well as the Messiah. And thus these men were denied entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 15 and in verses 27 through 28, we see that in their zealous fervor, these men contaminate everything they touch. And then in verses 16 through 22 and in verses 25 and 26, we find that in their greed and in their selfish indulgence, these men twist God's word for their own benefit. And finally, in verses 23 and 24, we find this fourth woe. Which is, which is the meat or the heart of this chiastic structure. It's where we see these teachers of the law and these Pharisees fail to discern the thrust of Scripture. And this ends up being the reason why they, they lack in all the other categories as well. So with that being said, let's, let's jump into our text. Look, look at the first woe. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that these men shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces? The context is what we have been seeing throughout this Gospel of Matthew. What was the message that Jesus preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as we have journeyed throughout this gospel, we have become witnesses to this truth that Jesus claimed, that he is this messianic king bringing about the kingdom of heaven to those who trust in him. Jesus had been inviting people into his kingdom. But we have also seen time and time again that these Pharisees would try to dissuade those who would believe in Christ's message. Look at these examples. Look at Matthew 9, verses 33 and 34. When the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Again, look at Matthew 12, verses 23 and 24. 
All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this, that this fellow drives out demons. Or how about Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16? But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you not hear what these children are saying, they asked him? But it was not just their outright denials that they used to try to convince the crowds that Jesus was this false messiah. No. For, for they had also brought numerous, numerous challenges to Jesus in an effort to undermine his authority. And this is what Jesus meant when, when he said that they were trying to shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. These Pharisees were actively engaging the crowds in an, in an attempt to convince them that Jesus was not their king. Christ tells them plainly that they themselves will not enter. But that is just the beginning of his woes. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, but when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Ouch! That's harsh. Not only do they shut people out, but, but they also try to make disciples who will follow their own twisted view. When Jesus talks about them winning converts, they weren't trying to create Jews out of Gentiles. Rather, they were trying to create more Pharisees, those who would join them in their cause. And often these, these converts would be, become more zealous than they were. For the only form of Judaism that they knew was this legalistic form called Pharisaism. Thus, they were twice the son of hell as the one who converted them in the first place. For they were locked into this theological framework that prevented them from seeing the truth of what God's word truly says. You see, these Pharisees were like a virus. They, they contaminated everything they touched with their false teachings. They were the blind leading the blind. And we see a, an example of this in Jesus' next woe. Look at verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. Nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. 
Now, what Jesus was referring to here was this practice of evasive oaths. And we had talked about this before, back in the Sermon on the Mount, when when Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simply put, these, these Pharisees came up with these different rules regarding what constituted an oath in God's name. And so swearing by the temple or by the altar meant nothing. But if one swore by the gold in the temple or by the gift upon the altar, then somehow that magically invoked the Lord's name. It was their little way of making these deceptive oaths. For if an oath wasn't binding, then it was very easy to just back out without feeling the guilt that you were breaking the command of the Lord. Jesus says no. He declares that all oaths, no matter what they are sworn upon, are binding, for they are all done in God's name. But the point of this woe has less to do with this specific abuse of breaking oaths and more to do with what happens when you twist God's word for your own greed and self-indulgence. These these breaking of oaths, they they were an offshoot, if you will, of a greater issue. And that's why Jesus calls them blind fools. For in their twisting of God's word, they had become the lawbreakers that they claimed not to be. They were so focused on the external that they didn't even realize that inwardly they had become corrupt. And this leads into Jesus' fourth woe in the, in the heart of this message. Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jesus uses this imagery of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel in an exuberant fashion. I mean, think about that. You're picking out a little gnat out of your water, but inside there's, there's a camel. But what it demonstrates is, is how blind these men truly were. They had such a focus on the minute details that they couldn't see the bigger picture. And that is exactly why they neglected the more important matters of the law. Things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice speaks of righting wrongs that have been done. Punishment for those who do evil and restitution for for those whom the evil has affected. Mercy, on the other hand, is a demonstration of God's kindness Kindness to those who actually deserve justice. They should be punished, and yet they receive forgiveness. And faithfulness, faithfulness is an honoring of of your word, of an oath that you have made to God and made to man. But at the heart of all three of these lies another central truth. Love. For without love, 
there is no justice. Without love, there is no mercy. And without love, there is no faithfulness. Again, these are examples of a greater issue that Jesus is addressing here. What Christ is saying here is pretty much what he has been saying throughout this gospel, particularly when he addresses the Pharisees. That because of their faulty interpretation of God's word, they have missed the thrust of what God's word really says. And thus, their image of God has become a false idol. You see, they, they viewed God as this, this great taskmaster, someone who was overly concerned with the tithing of mint and cumin. And in their efforts to please such a taskmaster, they missed out on God's kindness, on God's grace. They were so focused on the, on the minutia that they overlooked the purpose behind the minutia. Oftentimes, we as Christians can get caught up in the same trap. Am I right? Missing the purpose of why we do what we do. I think of all the good things that have come out of this church, and in one sense, I am extremely, extremely grateful. I mean, we support three missionary families. We have a, a youth ministry that, that makes kids feel welcome and loved. And think of our food ministry. How many thousands upon thousands have been fed throughout the years? All these are great, great things. But we need to ask ourselves, are they accomplishing the thrust of what, what God commands us to do, which is to point people to Christ? At our best, yes, they do these things. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when, when we are missing the heart of God's word. And just like these Pharisees, we too may be blind to it. Listen, when, when we read about the Pharisees, we tend to think of them as the bad guys, do we not? Right? I mean, even in our culture today, the word Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrite. But that's not how they were viewed during Jesus' day. No. Not by society, and definitely not by themselves. Think of the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He had described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he meant that as a compliment. For he thought that he was doing the Lord's work, even as he was persecuting the church. But why did he think that? What would lead him to such a conclusion? Because he had missed the thrust of the scriptures. And thus he could not see Jesus. I mean, think about his conversion. Christ had to knock him off his high horse. He had to blind him until he could see. Dear friends, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that, that, that we don't need to check our own hearts, especially when our good deeds are in abundance. We should ask ourselves, are we neglecting that which is more important? Have we become blind to the heart of Christ? Because if we have, then we're going to make the same mistakes that the Pharisees made. 
On the outside, on the outside we may seem right as rain, but inside, we're going to be a stormy mess. And this is what is expressed in the next woe. Look at, look at verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Because of their failure to see the thrust of Scripture, because they had neglected the weightier matters of the law, they had become like this dirty dish, clean on the outside, but within, full of greed and self-indulgence. And that is why they twisted the Scriptures the way that they did, working the system for their own selfish gain. It's why they had all, all their rules concerning oaths, so that they might be free from, from the guilt that they would feel when they were not true to their word. They wanted to feel justified in the midst of their sin. But there's more. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. <clears throat> it was during the, the month of Adar, right before Passover, that, that these tombs would be ritualistically scrubbed in order that they may shine white. And while this did beautify them, Beauty wasn't the true purpose behind this act. This was done in order to warn those who were traveling to Jerusalem, telling them to steer clear, lest they become ritually unclean and no longer be able to worship at the temple. You see, if a person wandered too close, they might unwittingly come into contact with the dead and thus become unclean. And therein lies the rebuke of Jesus. Because of the Pharisees' failure to see the thrust of scriptures, they had become like these whitewashed tombs. Everything they touched became tainted. They were unclean and not fit to enter the throne room of God. And the proof of their infectious nature was in their disciples, these converts who had become twice as much a son of hell as they were. For deep within, they were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. But there is one more result of their failure to see the thrust of scriptures. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate graves, the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. By erecting these monuments to the saints of old, these men 
thought that they were morally superior to their ancestors, those who persecuted the prophets before them. In their own minds, they, they reasoned that they, they would not have joined in in such wickedness and bloodshed, that they would have recognized that God was speaking through these men and that they would have repented. See, I made this monument to Isaiah. I am nothing like our idolatrous forefathers. Look, I'm decorating the grave of Jeremiah. How could my ancestors not know that he was a prophet? Jesus was calling out their hypocrisy. Because of their failure to see the thrust of scriptures, they had indeed become just like their forefathers. But even worse, for there was one who was greater than Isaiah or Jeremiah that was now among them. And all they could do was to scheme and to plot how they were going to kill him. And that is why the kingdom of heaven is shut in their face. There are many Christians today who naively think that if they had lived during the time of Jesus, that they wouldn't have joined in the crowd with the shouts of crucify, crucify. Look at the cross that I'm wearing around my neck. See how much I love my Lord? Look at the picture of Jesus that I have hanging on my wall. Does this not show you how much I honor him? Look at how I serve through all my good deeds and godly service. Dear friends, let us not be so bold as to think that we would not have been any different than these Pharisees. After all, the only reason that we worship our Lord today is because he has revealed to us that we are that sinful, that left to our own devices, we would murder our Lord a hundred times over. And that, my friends, is the thrust of the scriptures. These weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, are the very things that demonstrate our own wickedness and our need for a Savior. For they point directly to the cross of Christ. You see, it is at the cross where both justice and mercy meet. As the only one who was truly faithful to God died in our place. And this is what we read in our first scripture reading. This is what Paul meant when he penned these words. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The thrust of the scriptures points to a Savior who bled and died for a woeful people. And that's the whole point. Listen, we are only a cry for mercy away from being, from being as condemned as those Pharisees. Those woes that, that Jesus gave, they should be upon us. But they're not. And it's only because of what Christ did for us. Because he was willing to take upon himself our punishment. And because of that fact, we can go back to Jesus' first sermon 
that Sermon on the Mount and say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the good news. But these woes are written for a reason, and we should listen to them intently. The Pharisees, they missed the thrust of the scriptures, and thus they could not see the Christ. Let us not make the same mistake. Let these woes of Jesus be a warning to us as well. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now with nothing to offer except our cries for mercy. For in many ways, we are just like those Pharisees. Our good deeds are tainted and full of hypocrisy. We deserve the woes that fell upon them. And that is why we are so, so thankful. Thankful for your son. For it is only through him that we can see the thrust of your word. It is only through him that we can find mercy at the cross. And it is only through him that we can become faithful servants unto you. May your Holy Spirit move among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.